Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch London. For more information and resources, please go to ChristchurchLondon.org. Last Sunday, but this is the first time that I've got to preach since the summer break. So uh, I hope uh, lots of you got a break, got a holiday over the summer, got to go away at some point or another. Uh, I have three adult children, Ed is 24, Becky 22, Vicky 22, and for the first time for five years, all five of us went away together. And uh, once they'd all said, you know, we want to come, I said, well, where should we go? They said, Dad, Croatia is cool. So how would I know? So, um, so we went to Croatia. It is cool. It's a wonderful place. Recommend it if you are uh, looking for somewhere to go uh, next summer. Uh, we came back from Croatia and went almost straight away to the Christchurch London Leaders Weekend, which was absolutely fabulous. First evening we did sort of games, you know, bear in mind people from all four services, so people reconnecting, some people meeting each other for the first time, and so we did games on the first evening and a dance-off. And uh, you will be pleased to know, East Service, that you were in the final, or you were represented in the final of the dance-off, I'm not sure Basil's here this evening, is he? Well, I would. Lamar, if he was here, I might do that, but he's clearly not here. So big congratulations to Basil and, um, and next year, East Service. Uh, you may want to do even better still and actually win the whole thing. So the, uh, we started that way, but to be honest, the real highlight of the weekend was the sense of God's presence as we worshipped and as we prayed for one another. Honestly, I went with high expectations, but they were exceeded. It was just amazing. And that's one of the reasons that out of that, uh, that this term, we're teaching on the presence of God or the Holy Spirit. And we're doing that through a series we're calling The Acts of the Holy Spirit. And we're looking at the Acts of the Apostles, uh, the uh, fifth book of the New Testament, but actually, this evening, I'm going to divert slightly from that. I realise that's a bit of an unusual thing to do for the second week of a series. But I want to talk about our hearts. And actually, when the Spirit is poured out, it always touches our hearts. So I hope that there will be, I'm sure there will be lots of connection between what we have. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like you to give a very warm welcome, please, to the Christchurch London runner-up dance-off champion... <laughs> Basil Massad, yeah! Baz, you're late, but I'll forgive you because you've arrived in time for my sermon, which is the most important part, so great to have you here. Um, who knows what I was saying? Uh, there is a link, there's a link between the series we're doing on the Holy Spirit and our hearts, because when the Spirit gets poured out, it always touches our hearts. So... Uh, uh, I want to take a verse, it's a verse from Proverbs. Proverbs was written by King Solomon, who's sometimes called the wisest man that ever lived. And uh, the verse is simply this. Above all else, guard your hearts. Above all else, guard your hearts, for everything you do flows from it. Above all else, guard your hearts, for everything you do flows from it. Now Solomon here, when he talks about the heart, he's not talking about the biological organ at the centre of your being that pumps blood all over your body. He's talking about that 
essence of who you are, that space somewhere between your thinking, feeling and deciding which makes you, you. And he says that deep place is really, really important. He says above all else. So some of us go to the gym or go running or do weights. We keep fit. That is a good thing. But it's not as important as what Solomon's talking about tonight, apparently. Others of us, we're studying at the moment or our jobs demand like what feels like an intellectual workout. We have to use our minds a lot. That's good, but it's not as important as what Solomon's talking about here. Above all else, he says, guard your heart. Why? Well, our hearts are like the bit of the iceberg beneath the surface, the bit you don't see, but it shapes everything we do. Your heart will shape your character. It will shape the, pe the friends that you make and the decisions that you live out. Your heart will shape the way that your life goes. And as we look over the whole span of Scripture, we find that there's a challenge again and again, which is this. Will you, as you walk with God and grow older, will your heart grow larger or will it shrink? Are you going to have a growing heart or a shrinking heart? A growing heart loves people, loves God, and loves life. And does that more and more and more. That's the sort of heart that I guess we all want. A shrinking heart gets preoccupied with me. And my observation would be many people, as they go through life and get some buffetings and some difficult times and find that life takes things away as well as gives us things, that it's very easy to become defensive and for our lives and our hearts to start to shrink. And what I want to look at tonight is how we can shape our lives so that our hearts are growing. Love for God, love for one another, and for generosity and love of life. So Solomon says this is important. Above all else, and then he says, guard your hearts. Now, I think this is ironic. My guess is that some of you have probably cycled here this evening. If you have, I guarantee that you have locked your bike up before you've come in. Otherwise, it might not be there when you get back. All of us at some point today left our, probably our front door and we were careful to close it when we left. If I don't close my front door, it's quite likely that any possessions of any value will not be there when I get back. I was in Pret earlier. When I went to the loo, I was very careful to take my valuables, my laptop and my mobile with me. If I left them around, they could have gone. And so we guard the things that are valuable to us, but I wonder whether you guard your heart. Do you look out for your heart in the way that you look out for your gadgets? And the other things, your pictures may be the other things that are really valuable to you. And this evening I want to look particularly at the question of our hearts and generosity or money. John mentioned earlier that we've got a big offering in a couple of weeks' time on the 15th and 22nd of October. And I want to look at our hearts and how we shape our lives so we have growing hearts to help us prepare for the offering. Now, I understand, Dee tells me there's people here for the first time this evening. Now, you just, I probably need to say two things, just for your sake particularly. Firstly, we don't talk about money a lot here at Christchurch. Nothing like as much as Jesus talks about it in the Gospels. But it just happens we are tonight. And the second thing is, you know, you just, 
uh, take it easy. There's no pressure from you. But for many of us here who are part of this community, love this church, love one another, we're looking forward to contributing in a couple of weeks' time. And so I just want to give us a few thoughts so that we can think about that and prepare in the meantime. Now, one of the things that the Scriptures say about money is that it is a good servant but a poor master. Money is a good servant but a poor master. Money does lots of good things. You'll not be surprised to know that on going to Croatia, I had to spend money. But it gave me a fabulous time. And money buys great experiences. Not only does it buy great experiences, but it gives us an opportunity to be part of great causes. It was wonderful to see those pictures, wasn't it, of Joel and Tim in Rwanda. We love compassion. We love what they're doing for vulnerable children. It's a huge privilege to be able to give money. By giving money, I feel part of what's happening in Rwanda. So money's a good servant. Gives us great things. Helps us to be involved in great causes. But it's a lousy master. Because when money becomes our master, it sort of twines itself around our hearts. And rather than our hearts growing, they start to shrink. And if you'll just allow me to give money a bit of personality for a minute, as the scriptures in fact do, then money tries to be our master by a variety of promises and threats. Actually, like any bully tends to. They either promise you good things, they threaten you bad things. Money does the same. So I just want to start, just in the first couple of minutes, I want to mention the promises that money gives us. Now, just heads up, none of you believe the promises that money gives you. But we all fall for them from time to time. First promise that money gives us is that if you have some money set aside, you're secure. It certainly it feels that way to me. If I've got money in my bank account that isn't earmarked for anything, it feels good. I've got some set aside for a rainy day. Now, I would encourage that. Savings, saving is good. Getting into a habit of saving makes a huge difference across our life. But actually having money there doesn't enable us to buy the things which matter the most. I don't know what matters the most to you, but to me, the, having the love of the people around me, having joy in difficult times, my relationship with God, those are the things that matter most in my life. And money doesn't help me with them. So when we think, oh, well, if I have some, then I'm secure, well, sort of. But just remember, it doesn't promise probably what you value the most. Second thing that money says is that if you earn more and you own more, then you will be respected more. Now, I know you don't believe this. I know that if we took a poll here and we said, who here believes that everyone is of equal value in this room? Who here believes that whatever you earn is utterly irrelevant? We're all made in the image of God. Then I guarantee every hand in the room would go up. And yet, because of our fragile sense of self, because of our need for love and affirmation, we easily forget this. And we fall into the trap of thinking earning more, owning more, is going to get me treated better by others. It's the second promise that money gives us. The third promise that money gives us is that you can buy happiness. If I could live on that street, wear those clothes, go to that club, it would make me happy. Well, it will, 
momentarily, but only momentarily. I came across this in uh, the newspaper this week. Next slide, please. The secret of happiness lies in a good night's sleep. Uh, apologies for those of you that are parents of young children here. But it goes on and says this. Which would you rather, a 50% pay rise or a good night's sleep? Anyone who puts their happiness first should choose the latter, research says. Interesting. Interesting that the latest research actually tells us what we already know through the Bible, that you can't buy happiness. So those are its promises, security, value, and pleasure. But maybe more importantly at this time, money also can create a threat, and the threat is hopelessness. We're in an unusual time economically. And you guys and the guys in the West End particularly probably are deeply affected by it. First of all, for most of us here, we have student debt. Most of us who've been to university left university with tens of thousands of pounds of student debt before we'd even earned a penny. Well, that's a new deal to handle. That's a new thing. You don't want to know how much it cost me to go to university. It was different. Secondly, we're told that real wages are not increasing. That we shouldn't expect to earn more than our parents for the first time for over 100 years. That's a big deal for people. Thirdly, we will get to some good news, I promise you. Thirdly, Anyone here thought about buying a house in London recently? Quite. That's a bit of a challenge, isn't it, for most of us? It's a huge challenge. So there's some particular things going on now which do affect the way that we think about money. We can take a sort of K-sera-sera attitude. Spend while you can. Credit is cheap. I don't know about you. The credit card companies write to me and say, good news, we've increased your credit. I'm like, I didn't want any more credit. I don't need any more credit. Don't give me any more credit. No, don't worry, Mr. Stroud, unless you contact us, you can borrow even more. And so there's a real temptation with that. And so it puts us in a challenging place. Now, I'm thinking about these things, okay? So I'm thinking about the heart. I'm thinking about the economic times that we live in, and I'm going to the Tate Modern one day. And I'm going to the Tate Modern to see one of my favourite sculptures, Giacometti. Next slide, please. There he is. A Swiss sculpture whose works straddled the Second World War. He was in France, then he spent the Second World War in Switzerland, and then he came back to France right at the end of the Second World War, back to Paris in 1945. And the the sculptures that I went to see were all done after the Second World War. And I found them incredibly moving. I hope they'll work on this screen. Believe me, being there was, was incredible. But let's have the first one. So those are good examples of his work. Tall, gaunt, emaciated people. Post-Holocaust people. post war-ravaging a continent people, people who don't feel they've got much, people who felt traumatised and beaten down by life. Next, uh, next one, please. Walking man 
Now, a lot of those are not, that looks tiny, but a lot of them were my sort of height. Now, I don't know what you think. No. Yeah. Thank you. All right, I shall continue. Um, I don't know what you think of that walking man, but to me, he looks like a determined individual who keeps on walking, although he doesn't know now where he's going. He's lost his sense of purpose, but he's still got his sense of determination. Now, that often ho- happens with hopelessness. You keep moving. You keep going, but you don't know anymore where you're going. Next slide, please. Will civilization survive? There was joy on when victory was announced, but then they started thinking, how are we going to rebuild this mess? And that's about the time the Americans dropped atomic bombs on Japan. So you can sense the sense of desperateness that was there. Next slide, please. Giacometti is saying it wasn't just humanity, but it was all of creation. Next slide, please. That was affected and that was trying to survive. And as I'm there at the Tate Modern, I'm thinking not only that sums up post-war Europe, what fascinates me is how, why so many Londoners and others went to the show when it was on. It's just finished, by the way. Someone from the South emailed me afterwards and said, I'm going tomorrow. I said, don't. Well, you can, but it won't be there. It's just finished. But why did thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Londoners go to that show while it was on over the last few months? I think because it sums up how a lot of people feel about life now. I talk to lots of people. It's my job to talk to lots of people. And I hear hopelessness. More than that, I often hear a sense of being traumatized by life. And so I think that people often end up feeling a bit like that. Now, the irony is it's very hard to have a growing heart when you feel like that. And when I went round the exhibition, there was a mixture for me of, at one level, I was totally drawn in by the beauty of truth revealed, which is what it felt like. But I also hated it. I was like, no, this is not how life should be, at least for those of us that are followers of Jesus. He promised life to its full, life in all its fullness. But just think, think of John's gospel for a minute. Jesus takes gallons of water and turns it into wine. He takes five loaves and two fishes and feeds 4,000 people and has seven baskets left over. He says, if you're thirsty, I've got rivers of water for you. He promises the Spirit without measure. One theologian writing about this talk describes the Gospel of John as describing the superabundance of God. The superabundance of God. You've got Giacometti on one side. Traumatized humanity for whatever reasons. And then you've got the superabundant God who wants to breathe life into our hearts and breathe life into our spirits. You want to be countercultural? You want to live differently? Then do so by drawing on that superabundance of grace and of the Spirit. Paul was thinking of the same thing when he wrote this to the Corinthians. Next slide, please. And God is able to bless you abundantly, that word again, so that in all things at all times, having all that you need... 
all that you need all the time and in all places, you will abound in every good work. So it got me thinking. It got me thinking about what does the Christian life look like if we experience the superabundance of God? And I started thinking back through church history. And I want to tell you a little bit about some people who've lived out the best of the Christian faith. I know there's been the worst. We're not interested in that today. The best of Christian faith with that superabundance. I hope it will inspire you as it inspired me. First thing that I noticed as I thought about people down history had done this was that their joy was never based in their financial situation or money. It was never based there. One of the verses preachers love to preach is when Paul says, I can do all things through Christ. Sounds a really sort of exciting, punching the air type of verse. What they don't notice is what he says beforehand. He says, I'm content whether in plenty or in want. Well, when you can say, I'm content whether I've got a lot or a little, you can also say, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. And that sort of attitude that Paul had, he said, I'm just, I'm content. Why is he content? Well, he also wrote to the Philippians and he said, rejoice in the Lord always. The commentators describe Paul writing to the Philippians as the happiest man who's ever lived. And he's in prison at the time. But he just keeps on saying, rejoice, rejoice. Oh, did I mention rejoice? And Christians down the ages have been really inspired by this. I don't know how many of you know the story of St. Francis of Assisi. Father was a wealthy trader. Francis gave away all that he had and, create, and started a movement of men and women who were known for joy and for care for the poor. In fact, when Sir Francis was travelling and he would see friars come the other way looking miserable, he would stop and tell them off on the road. He said, what are you doing? Dressed like that, you've given your life, devoted your life to service to Christ. Why are you looking so miserable? You are rich beyond measure, he would say. Come and join my happy band. and Let us rejoice and care for the poor. Mother Teresa would be another example. I don't know that we'd think of joy with Mother Teresa. I'm, I'm sure she was joyful, but I don't think that's what comes, comes to mind so much as maybe contentment. But she was certainly, it, it appeared that wherever she was, whether caring for lepers in Calcutta, whether sending the Sisters of Mercy all over the road or talking to kings and presidents and the powerful of the world, she seemed remarkably content. And you know, the truth is that all of us will have times of lack in our lives. All of us will have hard times where we've not got much. Most of us will have times where we've got plenty as well. But the reality is that whilst you cannot control your times of lack and your times of plenty, you can control the joy in your life. And Jesus can give us joy I know, I don't know what my life will bring. I don't know whether it's going to bring good things or bad things, but I know I can have joy. That's all right. That's how the first Christians lived. That's how Christians, the best of Christians have lived down the ages. Their joy has never been in money. And secondly, they've always given money away when it's challenged the growth of their heart. For sometimes it's just been like a spiritual discipline. I know it's stopping my heart growing, so I'm going to give some away. C.T. Studd is one of my heroes. He was an England batsman, cricket player, and an aristocrat 
with a great inheritance or fortune. In 1882, actually just after Australia had beaten England and the English team had been presented with the ashes for the first time, these ashes represented the death of English cricket. Maybe that's why he gave it up, who knows. But he felt God speak to him and he said, give up your cricket, give up your national sporting achievement, give up your money and go to China and live amongst those people, live out your faith there. And so he gave away virtually his whole inheritance. He said, I can't go there and carry this inheritance. The burden will be too heavy for me. He did save three and a half thousand pounds and he gave those to his bride-to-be on, the, on, on, her wedding, on her wedding day. You know what Priscilla Livingstone Stewart did with that three and a half thousand pounds? She said, we don't need that. It'll only get, us, get in the way. Let's give that away too. And so they did. And remarkably, the area of China that they went to, then the places in India they went to, then the places in Africa they went to, experienced generations of revival and many good things happening in the name of God through Jesus Christ as a result of that incredible sacrifice. So these are Christians who never found their joy in money, gave it away when it hindered their hearts. And the third thing that I noticed as I thought about this was that Christian mission has been funded by an army of men and women who've learned the habit of regular sacrificial giving. Christian mission and the Christian church has been funded by an army of regular men and women. Many charities depend on philanthropy to get by. I'm not talking about philanthropy tonight. I'm talking about Christian generosity. Philanthropy is when you've become very, very wealthy and you have more money than you can use. And so you start to give significant amounts away in order to give back. It is a very good thing and it should be encouraged but it's not what I'm talking about tonight. I'm talking about Christian generosity. Christian generosity is when regular men and women who are on modest incomes and are getting by each month decide that as well as doing that, they will give regularly and sacrificially to God's work. And it's that, and millions and millions of men and women have done that. And it's that which has funded the growth of the church over the centuries. And millions of them have done that, giving 10% of their income to God. Now, for some of you here, that will sound like an extraordinarily large amount. We first find it mentioned, actually, in Genesis, when, Melchizedek, uh, when Abraham gives 10% away. We find it last in the Scriptures when Jesus just talks about it, and he says, when you tithe. He just assumes it still happens. We find it throughout the Old Testament. I've not got time to unwrap all that tonight. If you're interested and you'd like to listen to it, and work out what you think, then on broadcast section of our website is, uh, is a talk that I did this time last year called Faith and Finance, and you're welcome to have a look at that if you're interested and have a listen uh, as a result. The fourth thing was that they, they had experiences of remarkable provision. Unsurprisingly, the studs ran out of money, having given all their inheritance away. One time... CT, when he was told that there was no more money, said this. He said, how wonderful. He said, funds are running low. That means God trusts us and is willing to have his reputation in our hands. And they found that their every need was supplied. 
And for many of us too, over the years, who've been part of the Christchurch London family, would say we too have experienced remarkable provision. And sometimes that provision has been unexpected income when we've given. And other times it's been unexpected grace to handle the lack as a result of having given. Both of those are supernatural. And we never know how it is that God will respond and God will assist. So let me just make this as practical as I can. And let me give five or six pointers uh, just as we start to think about coming into land. How do we go about living this sort of life? Growing in love for God, for others, and for life. Firstly, my encouragement is that we give our hearts to God. That, of course, is the core of what it means to follow Jesus. It's to give our hearts. You know, God never demands our hearts. He always seeks to woo us and to appeal to us. You know, there are 600 commands in the Old Testament, but there's no Hebrew word for obey. Every command is something like listen or respond or internalize. They're calls, they're exhortations. And in the same way, God doesn't come and demand our hearts. He says, you give it to me and you give it to me when you're ready. And that's where we start. And so we give our hearts to God. Secondly, or just to say also on that, as someone once said, the happiest Christian is the Christian who's abandoned everything to God. And you know that is really true. My experience is that at times in my life where I've not abandoned everything to God, I live with conflict in my spiritual life. It's never a happy place to be. But when you say, I'm done fighting this, he is really Lord of every area, then there's incredible joy that follows. So we give our hearts to God. Secondly, we give our hearts to the things that God is doing in the world. You may say, what's God doing in the world? Well, one of the brilliant things about the local church is it connects us with some of those things. It takes us beyond ourselves. And so just as we heard about compassion and Rwanda, that's something that we're involved with. We heard about the Alpha courses, which we're really excited about this autumn. Wonderful to hear stories, your story, of what God did in, in your heart during the last one. We're trusting he will work in lots of our hearts and our friends' hearts, this one. We've got 65 people doing steps across the city. Quite a significant number of them have never been to church, but they know they need some help in here, as we all do from time to time. And so we learn to not only give our hearts to God, but then we give our hearts to the things that he loves as well. Thirdly, we give regularly to God's work. When Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says, set aside some money on the first day of each week. It's not just giving when, oh, there's a need, or when I feel moved, there's an opportunity to change something, so I give then. What Paul's talking about is something much more deliberate. Now, it's good to give in the spur of the moment. If I'm entirely honest, that's not, not something I'm brilliant at. But it's good to do. I would say it's even better to be regular and methodical about it. I think it's a sign in many ways of mature love. Think about, let me illustrate this, think about a time you've fallen in love. I've got, <laughs> I've got a whole load of faces like, I'm like, no, think about. Think about a time when you've fallen in love. You know what the experts say? They say those feelings of just sort of giddy excitement and delirious distraction, those 
feelings only last 18 months, typically. Sorry to, be disapp- sorry to disappoint. But they last about 18 months before love starts to change. And it feels different. It should actually go deeper. But in the same way with giving, we don't, if we just give in the moment, it's, it's like those first 18 months. I've, I've now been married for over 27 years. Now, for most days of those 27 years, when the alarm has gone in the morning, the first thing I've done on getting out of bed is make my wife a cup of tea. Now, you probably won't be surprised to know that I don't wake up in the morning and think, oh, it's a wonderful day and I love my wife so much that I can't think of anything I want to do more than get out of bed, go down to the kitchen and make a cup of tea. I'm not feeling anything when the alarm goes Apart from, can someone please turn that alarm off? It's actually, it's a decision. But those decisions and those habits shape lives and they shape love as well. And in the same way, that's why Paul said, you know, not just on our feelings, but do it regularly. Do it regularly. Set your hearts. In the same way, we're to give generously. You say, well, what's generous? Well, at a practical level, I would suggest it's enough Whatever, whatever enough is to loosen the grip of your heart, of money on your heart. And as we've already said, my conviction is that we're aiming or we want to get to around the 10% mark. I was chatting with a new, uh, with a new graduate just 10 days or so ago, and they're about to start their first job. And they said to me, they said, I'm determined to start giving 10% on my first pay packet Because they said, if I don't do it then, they said, I'll never do it. And I thought that was an absolutely fabulous attitude. Now, I understand that for some of us, we're like, giving 2% or 3% would be a big deal for me. And people have debts, and we have low income, or we're out of work, or there's all sorts of things we have to take into consideration. I don't know what you should give, but I do know that that attitude, this is what I want to do, is fabulous. And I think reflects something of what the Bible teaches about these things. We're to find joy and generosity. And we're to trust God for the outcome. We're to trust God for the outcome as we give. Now, to do that means that we don't just go on the maths and the sort of bean counter. You know, if I do that and that and that, it'll... It doesn't work like that. It works with faith. How many of you remember this bus advert from 2012? Next slide, please. Do you remember that? Some of you do. There's probably no God. This was the British Humanist uh, Association. There's probably no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy your life. Do you know what was wrong? Well, there's so many things that are wrong with that advert. (laughs) But here's one thing that was wrong with that advert, which was they assumed that probably that you've got to think it out like maths or something. But the reality is that most of the most exciting things in life are actually improbable. Do you know that this, the, this universe being created is highly improbable? It wasn't probable. The astronomer royal, Martin Rees, a few years ago, wrote a book called Six Numbers, where he said if there were, that for the world to be created, the universe to be created as it was, it needed numbers, it needed uh, things to be arranged in great precision. And that if any one of six numbers had been different, there'd have been no gravity. 
There'd be no hydrogen. There'd be no chemistry. We wouldn't have been able to exist in this world. He goes on by the end of the book. He says, imagine if you were in front of a firing squad. The only one in front of this firing squad. The men all empty their magazines of their rifles and every bullet misses you. If you had that experience, you would conclude that there must be some higher purpose or power at work. He said, when you look at the creation of the universe, you have to conclude the same. It wasn't probable at all. It was highly improbable. The next thing that's improbable is your existence. Given the universe, that you, you loving, thinking, moving, intelligent person, came out of inanimate matter. That's amazing. How did that happen? One very established, uh, reputed scientist actually said there is so little chance of you or I coming from inanimate matter that it's more likely that we came from Mars. That's not probable either. It's not probable the universe exists. It's not probable that you exist. It's also highly improbable that a carpenter from Nazareth who'd lost all his friends and is crucified, becomes the most influential person in the whole of history. Who'd have thought that was going to happen? So I conclude from this bus advert that there's nothing interesting in probably. That the exciting stuff is in the improbable. That the stuff we should really think about is the stuff that's not likely. You know, faith is the defeat of probability by trusting in God. It's the likelihood of probability being transformed by the power of God's possibilities. And so when we give, we give with faith. Not that's probably not going to work out, but we do it with faith, trusting the one who has made us, loves us, and has created us. Maybe uh, Natalie and the band could come back. And for many of us, just to say, of course, we've had those sorts of wonderful experiences of God's provision. And so I wanted to share these thoughts with you as you, like Philippa and I, like everyone across the four services, are preparing their hearts over these next two weeks. And I just hope that these thoughts would help us as we pray and as we think. And I guess this is at two levels. One, my appeal is organize your life so your heart will grow over a lifetime. Secondly, would you pray, would you think, would you consider how we as a whole church together can lean into this offering? And uh, if you've got any questions about that and you weren't at Beneath the Service, had a great time at Husk last Tuesday talking about some of this in more detail. Delighted, though, to catch me at the end. Uh, Come and say hi. And if we've not met, come and say hi as well. I'd love to meet you anyway. Let's stand together, shall we, and we'll pray. As we pray, I'm going to ask for the superabundant presence of God. We all have needs. Some of them are physical, some of them are emotional, some of them psychological or mental, others of them spiritual. I don't know what you need. I don't know where you're a bit short right now. I know where I'm short. And I want to pray for the one who turns gallons of water into wine. The one who feeds 4,000 and has more left over. 
the one who promises the spirit without measure to fill our lives and fill our hearts now. In Jesus' name. We ask, Spirit of God, rest upon us. Come, Holy Spirit. Thank you that you have been speaking this evening. And I pray you'd put things deep in our hearts. So I can just see just a few individuals. I know God's really marked you out. He had you in mind this evening and has been speaking to you. But I pray for us all, Father. I pray that that abundance of your Spirit would flood upon us. We want to be known, Father, as those whose joy is set in you, with growing hearts, who have learnt the joy of giving regularly, generously, sacrificially, and seeing your wonderful provision. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit of God. Flood this place with your presence that Jesus would be lifted high. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or for further podcasts and downloads, please visit ChristChurchLondon.org.